The talk you are about to hear is by Zen teacher Sensei Amala Wrightson. Today is um, Tuesday 3rd of July and um, this is um, I think the third in a series of three shows on the cardinal precepts. This is in preparation for our Matariki Jikai ceremony which is coming up um, just under two weeks and on a Sunday evening 15th of July and uh, we've got numbers 9 and 10 of the precepts to look at. 9 is um, I resolve not to indulge in anger but to practice forbearance and number 10 is I resolve not to revile the three treasures Buddha, Dharma and Sangha but to cherish and uphold them. And as we've gone through uh, these, these 10 precepts we've been looking at each one of them from uh, three different points of view. Um, first from the literal perspective, the most, the most obvious one, how we would read it on the surface, and this is where um, it's certainly a kind of prohibition that's important that we respect it, that we um, carry it out, so that's the literal view. But then we've also been looking at the, the um, great vehicle view, the Mahayana, which is looking more at the spirit rather than the letter. And in contrast to the kind of black and white, right, right and wrong aspect, this is more to do with um, compassion. And then the third perspective we've been looking at is the Buddha nature perspective, which is the, the completely transcendent aspect of each of these precepts, where we, uh, there's no clinging to self at all and no, no, um, um, not consciously acting upon another either. Both of these are... Um, uh, unified in an understanding of, of uh, oneness and emptiness. And I meant, as I mentioned last time, these three different approaches, we can relate them to the three general resolutions and that the, the literal one is more about kind of subduing our selfishness. Um, the, the Mahayana view is is actively developing compassion and cherishing of others in us. And then the third one is um, around, really around liberation, uh, liberating ourselves and others through awakening to the, the non-dual truth of Buddha nature. So uh, we'll still be employing these views um, somewhat in this talk, but I did find myself going off on some tangents on anger and and the reason why I think the reason why I did that <laughs> was because I hear from so many people how much it is something that they struggle with um, up there with the other two top uh, of the th three top three top ones of the ten uh, would be the ones around right speech they also I hear uh, again and again from that people struggle with those those precepts. But let's just um, just um, dive in and we'll, we'll see how far we get. Hopefully we'll get through both tonight. So the, the wording of the precept on anger is, I resolve not to indulge in anger, but to practice forbearance. And this, this not indulging in anger is a very 
important part of this precept. Um, it is not telling us, don't get angry. <laughs> we will, uh, many times. Um, you can see, we can understand anger as being um, part of our instinctual nature. Um, feeling angry, getting angry is, an, is a normal part of um, existence when we don't see fully, um, when, our, when our view is partial, in other words when we're not fully enlightened. Just to get a sense of, of how deep that, that um, instinctual drive goes, um, in classical Buddhism they, they categorize um, people who are close to, to um, Nirvana, nirvana um, and they say um, there, there's a stream enterer, a once returner, a non-returner and an ahat and, and the ahat is the, is, the, is the being who has who's entered nirvana so it's an extremely exalted state. Well when do you get rid of anger? Right before that. <laughs> when, you're, when you're a non-returner that's when the passions are um, are overcome. So, uh, a very you could say a very advanced state of evolution. And in the Mahayana tradition, it's it's um, also at a very um, high level of of evolution that we um, uh, really free ourselves from anger. So we're told. And that's at the at the fourth stage. There are ten stages of the Bodhisattva, the Bodhisattva Bhumis, and it's not until you get to the fourth stage, uh, called the stage of intense wisdom, uh, that all the passions are burnt away. So um, uh, make peace with your anger. Don't get angry with your anger. <laughs> um, it's it was it's something we're going to have to work with, all of us. And as with all the instincts, um, anger contains a life-supporting element. Uh, it's not entirely negative. Um, I brought uh, Fudo along, who usually sits on a, a bookcase in our bedroom um, uh, to put on the altar to, as a way of expressing this truth. Now, Fudo is a, is a kind of garden, guardian deity. Achala is the Sanskrit name for Fudo. Fudo is the Japanese, Sino-Japanese. And this Fudo is actually considered to be an, an emanation of the Buddha Akshobhya, uh, who's, who's um, Buddha of the, um, the Eastern Pure Land. So um, there's something divine and there's, and there's um, Buddhahood even in uh, Anger and please, after this, if you haven't already had a look at him, go out and take a look. He's got, he's got one tooth that goes up and one that goes down, and he's got a very, very cross-looking um, face. And he carries in one hand um, a, a large sword, and in the other a lasso, which he uses to tie up um, those who are. Um, doing things what he's trying to stop them doing. <laughs> so um, perhaps th this is also why anger is such a hard one for people because it has these, these, these two aspects to it. Um, there are lots of things that um, uh, it's healthier to get angry at. Um, 
uh, how about all the things that are happening to our earth, air, water? Isn't that something that really is, is crying out for us to, to say no, enough? But it's fraught with danger and difficulty. I just want to read a little bit from a little book called Red Threads In, Humanly Entangled in Emptiness by Susan Murphy. And I just ordered this. I haven't actually had a chance to read it. Um, but uh, she says some very um, perceptive things about anger. She writes, Anger is one of the most interesting of the strong emotions that Buddhism traditionally works to extinguish because it can save as well as destroy. This must stop the roused clarity of indignation at abuse or exploitation, the non-negotiable no that's a first move of stopping and ameliorating harm and damage to people and the earth can be a surge of empathic and compassionate anger that knows clearly what must be opposed at a critical moment. This is very much the spirit of Fudo, that sometimes a fierce response, a, a vigorous response is, a necessar is necessary. Yet even that anger, so there's this clearly um, empathic, empathic and compassionate anger, even that anger can grow caught in right or wrong. So we can start to attach to the, our feeling of rightness when we get, uh, um, when we experience sometimes called righteous anger. We become righteous. When we are so very right, we are already subtly wrong. Anger, motivated by what is completely clear and clean, right to the bottom, is rare upon the earth. Especially since we are all too, so implicated in each other. In the case of harm to the earth, for example, who among us is without damage to the earth and can cast a first stone? As Robert Hass posed the dilemma, the, 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 as Robert Hass posed the dilemma that leaves no one and nothing out of this critical moment in human time and its only means of resolution. And here's what he said. We are the only protectors, and we are the thing that needs to be protected against, and we are what it needs to be protected from. So actually, let me read that again, because I think I read it slightly wrong. Try again. We are the only protectors, and we are the thing that needs to be protected, and we are what it needs to be protected from. Now, how about that? So, to respond without lashing out, to respond recognizing that we're all deeply implicated in what is going on. She continues a bit later. As we struggle to make a demanding turn from subduing the earth to recognizing and subduing the alienated extractive mindset, that overwhelms the ability of the earth to self-renew, 
Anger can both rouse and divide people in their responding. Like all the strong emotions, anger remains an informative yet tricky character. While it can rouse people to action, anger is unlikely to evoke much of the real depth implicit in a communion of subjects which motivates the collective strength of community. So while it can get us going, it can get us uh, off the mat and into action over something, it's not going to be what sustains us and sustains community right through that action. Other passions need to come in. Real um, love, fellow feeling, understanding, empathy, all of these things are needed. L loving kindness, kindness especially, And like all the strong emotions, anger is complex, occupying a wide spectrum of energy and ways of living out that energy. There's the anger that slowly eats the soul, brutalizes others, kills or suffocates lives, including the one consumed by it, or prepared to indulge their rage in grandiose terms. Anger dismisses boundaries and is aggressively prepared to judge and invade another. There is cold anger that immobilizes relationship, hot anger that scares, bottled anger that hangs in the air as threat, passive aggression that plays the victim and denies all knowledge of any destructive agency. Hot or cold, anger is painful to feel a most painful needle to sit on, painful to suffer as its victim, momentarily satisfying to explode, immediately shameful when the impotence within it is so openly displayed, and even more shameful when you recognize its impact on the ones you love. say anger is a little bit like sugar it can it can kind of energize you and fire you up but it makes you sick too if that's what you're living on constantly and um, like like um, putting a tooth into um, uh, a glass of, of, of sugary water it's corrosive as well and it's corrosive of our relationships if that's what they're based around so it's, it, um, it's something that um, without great, great care uh, can be a destroyer. Uh, somebody uh, writing about anger said, everything in the universe has a building up phase, a static phase, and a, a breaking down phase. Anger can be taken as a single for a breaking down stage. So you can see here, we can relate this back to Fudo, that um, anger has this kind of cosmic aspect to it, that um, we can, our anger can be in tune with um, what needs to be broken down, what needs to, to be destroyed. But, but 
uh, again, we have to be careful. What do we do with this signal for a breaking down stage? We have to be uh, vigilant that we uh, that about whether we are using anger or being used by it. And if it is if it is the latter, then then damage will be done. Uh, what we, as we were looking at on Sunday in the Dharma study, what um, we can apply to our anger is uh, attention, mindfulness. If we can, if we can create some space in between the the the, the feeling of anger that that of, our, of that rising in us and the expression um, because it's really the the expression of anger that is the is the um, it's the what we have some say in we we don't have a say about whether it arises or not in us um, there was a there was a philosopher talking on the radio a couple of weeks ago and she was saying we need to distinguish between between anger at some kind of injustice and blame and that's where where anger kind of is mistaken so we could we could think of it as being um, anger as as it's the, the indulging anger is um, when we just um, allow it to go with that, that sense of blame but what we really need to work towards is um, allowing anger to ignite us to action but then um, making sure that whatever however we express it it's it's um, it's not blame or vindictiveness but more um, a rational or a wise seeking of a solution seeking a way beyond whatever it is that has aroused our anger there's something that the um, sixth ancestor of Zen Hui Nung said which is uh, very apt here uh, some of you will have heard this before he said when others are in the wrong I too am to blame when I am the wrong in the wrong I alone am at fault I'll say that again when others are in the wrong I too am to blame when I am in the wrong I alone am at fault and what he's pointing to here is this kind of spiritual attitude that um, when when we see um, somebody acting uh, some kind of bad behavior in somebody else then it's important to um, see the whole context understand the multiple causes that that can be behind people's bad behavior ignorance often lack of education all kinds of um, factors around upbringing um, how people were treated as children um, 
poverty, uh, all of these different factors can be involved. And so seeing beyond just the, the, the single individual to the context, um, what we could call this, in, from a Buddhist point of view, multiple causes and conditions, doesn't mean that the person doesn't play, have some responsibility, but to see that context, to see beyond just the, the individual. But when we make a mistake, um, our opportunity there is is to take responsibility for actions because that's empowering of us to make changes, to um, decide to um, proceed in a different way in the future if we really see how we've, we've um, made a mistake. But we have to be careful about this um, instruction too. It's all very uh, complex area. Think of people who have stuff, suffered some kind of trauma as children. Um, quite often, uh, especially if that, that uh, trauma is, is abused by caregivers, parents, it can um, lead people into um, post-traumatic stress disorder and um, it isn't isn't helpful just to to um, to blame oneself for one's uh, misfortune. In fact, that's actually uh, can be a part of the deep um, pain of of having experienced abuse is the assumption that that you've experienced it because um, you're a bad person or a worthless person. And, and there can also be different kinds of, of what psychologists call um, dissociative uh, behaviours that are um, used by somebody who's suffered trauma, trauma to um, survive what has happened emotionally. Um, but then later on, those same kinds of, of, of strategies uh, become unhelpful and there has to be a whole process of working through different things which may, may be going into a trance-like state or um, substance abuse or um, cutting oneself and all of these different things can be a ways of avoiding um, feelings and actually part of the healing process can be can be um, when one really starts to get in touch with and feel that anger that one has held at bay for um, possibly decades. So there it may be actually more important to be um, uh, seeing the, the um, unhealthiness of blaming oneself and, and getting some release from that, from that um, way of thinking. But that, that sort of leads us into one of the paradoxes about anger and that is that um, 
we do all different kinds of things because it's unpleasant and and very scary if if you're feeling angry towards the person who's caring for you that um, Acting out our anger can actually be uh, one of the ways in which we we um, avoid it. We by acting it out by exploding or having a tantrum or or um, pl plotting some kind of revenge. Um, it is a, actually a way of um, keeping at arm's length. The, the powerlessness and the vulnerability and, and the fear that go with them at bay. We, we were out walking our dog on Monday at a, at a, at a beach and we, we, we met this blind dog, a terrier, and um, as soon as our dog got close to it, it snarled and snapped. And afterwards said, uh, Richard said, blind dogs are always like that. They always snap. And, and it's true, we've encountered blind dogs before and they do tend to always do that. But you can see what would be underneath that. There's, there's anxiety there. And that um, the, the snarling and the snapping is, um, is coming out of that anxiety. A blind dog doesn't know how big the other dog is, might smell it, might um, know it's there, but it, it hasn't, it, it's, it's a it's an, um, fear producing thing to be blind. So that's its, its, that's its coping mechanism, you could say. And what we discover um, as human animals is that, that those impulsive behaviours are uh, uh, snarling and snapping may work in the short term to make us feel better um, but in the long run they often are destructive. So we, we have to strike a balance, a kind of balance with, um, with anger. It's not healthy to just suppress our feelings. They'll, they'll, they have to go somewhere and they'll, they'll pop up in uh, losing our temper at some other time or, or sometimes um, it can all be turned back on ourselves in depression. Um, but how do we find a skillful way to to work with the anger without suppressing it but without indulging it as the precept says. And what really um, is the path that can work more effectively is transmuting the anger, channeling it in a, in a positive way. And we can, we can break it down into three steps. First of all, uh, there needs to be some awareness. And um, awareness in, the, in time. So in between 
the arising of the of the of the feeling and the acting on it. Um, Joseph Goldstein talks it about awareness in the about to moment. So if we can catch ourselves at that moment, then we can um, create a little bit of space around it. Um, it's a little bit like you can imagine if your if your anger when it first arises is like is like a um, a river, and when the when the um, sides of the river are like a, a narrow gorge, and so it's just it's just rushing through that space. It doesn't can't control it. It's got a lot of momentum with it. But if at that moment you can bring some awareness to it, then it's like it's like the 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 sides of the river, the rocky sides of the river, the cliffs are further apart, and that river can slow down as it enters that wider space. So creating space is a huge factor. And then out of that, we can, uh, if there's a little bit of space and awareness, we can we can see what is it that is upsetting us. What is really going on here? And maybe that leads to some clear, skillful communication about what's going on. It's likely that there'll be some wish for something, some um, unmet desire. And if we can articulate that, what, it, what that is, then that's going to be um, insight into ourselves. And then the other thing, it may lead to some action. Maybe we'll, we'll um, join some movement if it's an issue, if it's a public issue. Or maybe we'll retrain and to uh, do a different job or um, donate to some cause that we feel strongly about. So we start with mind, um, then, then from that we can come to skillful speech and skillful action. In the mindfulness sort of movement, they often have catchy little um, ways of, of um, reminding ourselves of, of uh, what to do. And one of them uh, <clears throat> is stop, which is stop, take a breath, observe, and proceed. So we can we can really um, train ourselves in this when if anger arises and we usually behave in unskillful ways, just to again to create some space around the the passion that comes up. And again, relating this to our Dharma study, we were talking about the 12 links and there being a, um, an opportunity in between feeling and craving to break the cycle. So we can imagine feeling being this, this unpleasant um, passion that comes up strongly. And then our normal, our normal, um, unconscious um, process there, maybe just going straight into into craving, which the other side of which is a aversion, where anger comes in, 
and to so there's this urge to avoid the unpleasantness of what we're feeling and so we want to blame somebody else or lash out or um, swear at somebody um, whatever it is and so to to be able to break before we move into avoiding the feeling, avoiding the unpleasantness, just to notice what's going on. So, um, just to go back now to our our three. Um, different modes of, of uh, interpreting these precepts. So if we're to take this, this precept of not indulging in anger but to practice forbearance. Um, the classical view, um, the, the literal view, is just anger is unwholesome and it's to be avoided. The, the Mahayana view is, is um, comes with this more nuanced sense of anger, the possibility of anger as energy and also the, the role that, that fierceness can play that's, that's useful. Um, when, when, when facing a bully um, there has to be uh, firmness there. It's the lonely language that, the, that a bully will, will probably understand. And so if we interpret this, this um, precept from the Mahayana um, point of view, we can say there are times to uh, show anger. The example that's often given is of um, um, a child, a very small child running onto the road and the parent um, grabs the child and says, don't do that. Showing anger, but not actually feeling it all the way down. Yasutani Roshi, somewhere in his commentary, he says that if, 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 um, the anger in an adult towards a child does go all the way to the bottom is that adult really um, qualified to be a parent. The third way of looking at this precept is um, um, the Buddha nature perspective and, and here we're really talking about, about pure action. A little story that um, Robert Aitken tells, as an illustration of this, is about Robert Louis Stevenson, who um, one day saw a dog being mistreated and um, at once stepped in between the dog and its owner. And the, the owner was pretty put it out by this and he turned to Robert Louis Stevenson and said it's not your dog and Robert Louis Stevenson apparently said um, it's not your dog it's God's dog and I'm here to protect it 
And then just one last, last aspect of this precept. In the version that we have, we say, I resolve not to indulge in anger, but to practice forbearance. And this practicing forbearance, this is the, the other side of anger. Um, practicing forbearance, patience. And, and especially forbearance of um, injustice or slights that we may experience, unkindness. There's a poem by a Japanese master, Tore Zenji, um, that actually is um, sometimes recited in, in uh, Zen monasteries. And he, he, um, he says, I'm only a simple disciple, but I offer these respectful words. When I regard the true nature of the many dharmas, I find them all to be sacred forms of the Tathagata's never-failing essence. Each particle of matter, each moment, is no other than the Tathagata's inexpressible radiance. With this realization, our virtuous ancestors gave tender care to beasts and birds with compassionate hearts and minds. Among us, in our own daily lives, who is not reverently grateful for the protections of life, food, drink and clothing? Though they are inanimate things, they are nonetheless the warm flesh and blood, the merciful incarnations of Buddha. All the more, we can be especially sympathetic and affectionate with foolish people particularly with someone who becomes a sworn enemy and persecutes us with abusive language. That very abuse conveys the Buddha's boundless loving-kindness. It is a compassionate device to liberate us entirely from the mean-spirited delusions we have built up with our wrongful contact, conduct from the beginningless past. With our open response to such abuse, we completely relinquish ourselves and the most profound and pure faith arises. At the peak of each thought, a lotus flower opens and on each flower there is revealed a Buddha. Everywhere is the pure land and its beauty. We see, the f see fully the Tathagata's radiant light right where we are. May we retain this mind and extend it throughout the world so that we and all beings become mature in Buddha's wisdom. So, again, to, to see that the injustices that are done to us can become um, ways to um, for us to drop ourself. He says it is a compassionate device to liberate us entirely from the mean-spirited delusions we have built up with our wrongful conduct from the beginning of the past. Um, not to suggest this to other people as being how they should approach their, um, uh, their, their injustices, unless we're pretty sure that they're, they're in a place where they can hear it. But um, something that we can, we can take to heart ourselves 
And it's a tough one. It's a really tough one to, to practice forbearance when we feel we're being wronged and seen unfairly, treated unfairly, judged unfairly. This, this poem of Tore Zenji um, really um, is a perfect lead-in to the final precept, which we don't have much time to look into, but we'll do have a, um, a quick look. Um, when he says, um, when I regard the true nature of the many dharmas, I find them all to be sacred forms of the Tathagata's never-failing essence. This is really, is really getting at the at the spirit of this last precept of not to revile the three treasures but to cherish and hold them. The Tathagata is another word for the Buddha. So he's saying that all the dharmas, all the phenomena that we encounter are an actual fact forms of the Buddha's never failing essence. Everything we experience is um, Buddha nature. So with this, um, with this tenth precept, we're brought, we're brought back full circle right to where we started, um, which is in the, in the sixteen precepts what we take first is the three refuges, Buddha, Dharma and Sangha. And you could say that all of the vows are really in, included in these three refuges. Just read a little bit um, from the from the Juju Kinkai um, as we have been going through these verses, um, one mind precept verse by Bodhidharma. Um, he says, Self nature is inconceivably wondrous. In the one Dharma, not giving rise to the dualistic view of sentient beings and Buddhas, is called the precept of refraining from reviling the tr three treasures. And he comments, Ms. Yasutani Roshi comments, whenever someone thinks I'm just an ordinary person, he has reviled the three treasures. There are no ordinary people, there are only Buddhas. Yet the dream that one is an ordinary person becomes a nightmare from which one cannot awake. The Dharmakaya, that's the, the Dharma body, is just inconceivably wondrous Buddha nature. There is not a single particle that is left out. Is there any way to revile it? To criticize something faultless is to revile it. The three treasures are absolutely faultless, lacking nothing. The 16 Buddhist precepts begin with the three refuges and end with the 10th cardinal precept to refrain from reviling the three treasures. Beginning and ending match, the 10th precept being the necessary complement of taking refuge in the three treasures. So we come back, we come back to um, Buddha, Dharma and Sangha. Uh, but what are these? What are we actually not reviling? Let's have a few more minutes and so we just look at, um, finish up with looking at, at um, There are uh, three different ways that we can look at these um, 
at these three treasures, three, three again, three perspectives. And they're, they're known as the unified, the abiding, and the manifested three treasures. The unified is the most universal. It's known in Japanese as Itai Sambo. The unified three treasures consist of the Buddha Vairachana, it's like the cosmic Buddha, representing the realization of the world of emptiness, of Buddha nature, and of unconditioned equality. Second, the Dharma, the law of beginning and endless and endless becoming, to which all phenomena are subject according to causes and conditions. And third, the harmonious fusion of the preceding two, which constitutes total reality as experienced by the enlightened. So, um, this world of emptiness, of, of the unconditioned, of equality, completely fused, completely uh, one with the Dharma. Endless becoming, cause and effect, to which all of us are, are subject, all phenomena. So these two, uh, two sides of one coin. And Sangha seen as just the harmonious fusion of these two. Um, complete harmony uh, that we can experience ourselves. So that's the most, um, the most sort of um, exalted understanding of these three treasures. The other two um, may be a little bit easier to grasp. Um, there's what's known as the manifested three treasures, which are um, the Buddha, the historic Buddha, who um, who realized the truth of these these unified three treasures and then taught that to people. And what he uh, what he, he spoke, the words he spoke, and the sermons he gave. The talks he gave, that's the, the um, manifested Dharma. And then the people who heard him, his immediate disciples, um, the ones who were alive when he was around and heard his, his teaching um, and, and realized this, the Itai Sambo themselves, um, they're the um, manifested Sangha. And then finally, there's the abiding three treasures. And those consist of um, all the Buddha figures, all the, the images we have of the, the, the figures on the altar right now and, and above the door are um, the abiding three treasures. They're what, they're, they're what we have uh, remaining of the Buddha who was present um, 2,500 years ago. And then the sutras, everything that's written down, that's that's the abiding Dharma, and then um, the abiding Sangha, it's us. Well, everybody in this room is uh, part of the abiding Sangha, the disciples of the Buddha who continue to um, study and practice um, the Dharma. So, um, in general terms, if we um, just sum up, um, we can't we can't um, can't really um, 
find um, deep peace without um, cherishing the Buddha um, that is uh, our teachers and our own and our own innate Buddhahood and without um, cherishing and upholding the teachings themselves um, as they have come down to us and and without respecting each other and uh, being grateful for uh, this chance that we have to support each other in our practice. So really the unified three cherishes that I talked about before, they're really, it's really a way of talking about the whole universe, um, all of reality, and the, the ten precepts that we've looked at have really been just um, uh, distinguishing uh, different ways that we can if we if we uphold the precept that we can really honor that reality the the re reality of, of awakening that we are part of um, so our time is up um, very last thing is just a, sh a short passage from um, the Vajrayana uh, teacher Mathieu Ricard um, and he's talking here about, about the precepts. The basis of ethics is extremely simple. Nothing is intrinsically good or evil. Good and evil exist only in terms of the happiness or suffering they create in ourselves or in other beings. If we adopt a truly altruistic attitude so that we are deeply concerned with the well-being of others, then this becomes the surest guide for our judgment. In our daily lives, we'll be, we will be able to see far more easily which actions will bring about more happiness and which will relieve more pain. This is direct experience and not a moral theory or a set of predetermined rules. It means paying constant attention to our motives. The mind has been compared to a crystal that takes on the color of the place where it lies. Sorry, the mind is being compared to a crystal that takes on the color of the place where it has been placed. It is neutral. Our intentions determine the true nature of our actions. So it all, it all comes back to um, being as, as aware as we can about uh, what motivates us and, and working, seeing that and, and working from that for our own and others' happiness and relief of suffering. We'll stop there and recite four vows. Without measure, I vow to merit endless blind passions. I vow to uproot Dharma gaze without fear. 
I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha. I vow to attain all beings without number. I vow to liberate endless blind passions. I vow to uproot Dharma gates beyond measure. I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha. I vow to attain all beings without number. I vow to liberate endless blind passions. I vow to uproot Dharma gates beyond measure. I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha. I vow to attain. The teaching you have received is offered freely. If you would like to make a donation to support the continuation of this podcast service or learn more about practice opportunities at the Auckland Zen Centre, please visit www.aucklandzen.org.nz.